What would you say if someone, anyone, say your children, your grandchildren, or a friend, or even a stranger, what would you say if they come up to you and ask you, can you tell me how I can live my life well? Can you tell me what it means to live my life well? What would you tell them? Would you tell them maybe this is how you will live your life well? Make a budget. Stick to it and invest wisely. Or maybe will you tell them find a fulfilling career. That's how you live your life well. Or would you perhaps tell them Work hard, but don't forget to play. Or maybe you will tell them, watch your calories and exercise. You know, actually, they're all very useful advices. And maybe in their own way, maybe they are even wise advices. But do you see how these answers actually don't require any spiritual insight because these answers are the kind of answers that even people who do not know God can readily agree with but you and I we know the author and the Lord of life so we have access to better insights to answer the question how can I live my life well. And this morning, I'd like you to consider with me three things that God teaches us to live our life well. And the first thing is, think about death. Think about death. That is to say, the very first tip to living life well is to think well about death. Except this is not possible apart from knowing God. Notice the first two verses. How these first two verses tell us how death touches the righteous man. Now, you know this, I think, that in the Old Testament, the righteous man is not a sinless man. The righteous man in the Old Testament is not a perfect man, but rather the righteous man in the Old Testament is the person who has aligned himself with the God of righteousness. So in the Old Testament, the phrase righteous man is really a shorthand for the person who is loyal to God, who is devoted to God, and who serves him with all their heart. But what for? Why bother? Because the same thing happens to the righteous people who have aligned themselves with the God of righteousness, who put God before and first everything else and love Him and serve Him with all their heart. The same thing happens to them that happens to those that do not love God, those who do not serve God, those who do not acknowledge God in that both Those that love God and those that ignore God, they all die. So what is the point of being righteous? 
And if the same thing happens to both the righteous and those who have turned from God, when the righteous people put God first and live for Him and love Him and worship Him, did they really live their life well? Well, the answer is yes. Because look at this. It is true that both the righteous and the wicked die. But their deaths mean totally different things. So look at the first two verses. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. That is to say, and I think we can all agree on this, death is the most horrific and horrible and painful experience of life. And yet, God's grace... His love for his people transforms even the most horrific reality of life and changes its meaning so that death is God's gift to the righteous. God brings death to his people in order to set them free from every evil that trouble them in life. And death brings them into peace. The word for peace there is the well-known word shalom. And we need to understand that shalom in the Bible is not just an empty greeting. Rather, shalom means to be whole, to experience, to possess wholeness. In other words, God gives his people death to free them from all evil that have troubled them in their life and to make them at last whole, to make them complete. And that is why for God's covenant people, death is not a loss, but again, and of course, no one ever thinks about it this way, especially those who have turned from God. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. They are incapable of understanding of what death means to God's people. It is not a curse. It is not a punishment, but it is a gift that makes us whole. But you realize and you see that is not the case with the wicked. It's interesting. The first two verses of this chapter, Isaiah, teaches us what death means for the righteous people, those who have aligned themselves with the God of righteousness. But in the last two verses of this chapter, Isaiah tells us what death means for the wicked. And the wicked in this sense, does not mean that they are uh, the worst criminals in the world. 
but they are simply those who have not aligned their lives and their hearts with the God of righteousness, those who live without any regard to God, those who do not honor God, those who have turned from him. And in the last two verses of this chapter, Isaiah tells us what death means for them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Do you see that in the first two verses, the righteous in death enters into peace. In the last two verses, the wicked, the Lord says, there is no peace for the wicked. You know, we say, we often, maybe always say, rest in peace when people die. If only. Because peace is a gift that God reserves only for those who have loved Him. And there is no resting in peace for those that Isaiah and the Lord calls the wicked, those who have turned from God, those who have ignored and scorned God. You see, they are the people who, while they were alive, they chased after shalom, they chased after wholeness away from God. It did not occur to them, and if it did occur to them, they ignored it, they denied it, they mocked it, that God and God alone can make them whole. And while they were alive, they looked and searched everywhere to become whole, to experience shalom and peace, except in God. And what death does to them finally is that death shows them that there is no peace without God. And this is why this is the first answer to the question, how do I live well? If you desire to live well, you need to think often about death. That day is coming. We, none of us know when that day is. You will die. And your death may either be a gift that brings you wholeness or the thing, the very thing that denies you once and for all that you will never experience wholeness, but to be shattered, to be broken for eternity. If you want to live your life well, think often about death. Secondly, the second answer to that question is, think often about God's holiness. Think often about God's holiness. Now, I do regret that within the constraint of our time this morning, I can't really touch upon all the wonderful things of this chapter. I can only touch upon the highlights. But notice that in verses 3 through 19, um, Isaiah contrasts the lifestyle on the one hand of the wicked and of the righteous. And in verses 3 through 13, Isaiah describes in lurid detail the kind of life that ends in God's wrath. 
And God calls them offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. And you may have noticed that throughout this chapter, there's much uh, that is said about uh, sexual immorality and adultery. The thing about physical adultery is that it makes visible the disloyalty of the heart. It's always the heart that becomes disloyal first that ends up in physical adultery. And that is why in the Bible, adultery is a fitting symbol for the spiritual apostasy of God's people. And we often see in the Bible that the symbol and the reality coalesce so that sexual immorality is the inevitable outcome of falling away from God. And we see that uh, clearly throughout Israel's history, don't we? Israel abandoned the Lord all too happily and all too quickly and adopted the practices of surrounding nations. And as they adopted as the religions of the surrounding nations, they adopted the religion which was just drenched with sexual immorality. And the religions of, their, of her surrounding nations were the kind that, that made sexual immorality the centerpiece of the worship of their gods. And you may know this, may, maybe not, but uh, in the religions of the surrounding nations of that region, and I think this is true of practically all religions throughout the world, the temples were often maintained through prostitution. So the, prost, uh, the priests of these temples often served double purpose. Uh, they worship uh, their gods through prostitution. And that's the practice that Israel adopted. And that's what Isaiah means in verse 7. On a high and lofty mountain, you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. The tragedy, however, is that they soon discovered that the false gods of the nations were insatiable. Look at verse 5. You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks. You know, it's shocking to hear it. But uh, child sacrifice was a common feature in the pagan religions of the surrounding nations. But this is what God's people were doing. Think about this. They thought, these people who turned from the Lord, they thought that serving the Lord was too burdensome. But the thing is that the Lord never Ask for the blood of their children. They thought themselves too wise to serve the Lord and live for Him. And so instead, they became fools to serve the insatiable demons that drink up the blood of their children. Maybe you are thinking, Well, that's all very interesting, but what does that have to do with me? No one does this today. I wonder. 
You know, today, even today, people sacrifice marriage and children to the idols that promise them prosperity. You know, it's the same spirit. It's the same thing. Only the details are different. And this is what God calls wicked. But then in verses 14 through 19, Isaiah shows, on the other hand, the life that God blesses. And what we learned from the wicked in the previous part of the chapter is that they are characteristically the kind of people who listen to the lies of the idols. But the righteous, on the other hand, they are the the people who listen to God, and God speaks to them. So chapter 57, verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God's name is holy. You know, I think it's beneficial to be reminded today everyone loves to say God is love and God is love and God is love you know that is true it's gloriously true but to the best of my knowledge the Bible never says God's name is love the Bible does say God's name is holy God's name is holy. And holy, that concept, it fundamentally means that he is set apart. God is set apart from the creation. He is not a part of the creation, but he is high and lifted up. And he is high and lifted up above the creation as the creation's Lord to receive worship and obedience. And he inhabits eternity. That is to say, God is equally the Lord of time as he is the Lord of space. God is holy, set apart. He has a unique relationship to everything that exists. And out of that Holiness comes purity for God's people. We, we are set apart. God's people are set apart to God to love his ways, to think his thoughts after him, to reject all that does not line up with God's holiness, but to embrace wholeheartedly everything that reflects God and his character. That's what holiness means to us, and that's what purity means for us. And so to live life well, we need to think often about God's name. And his name is holy. And again, no other attributes of God are so elevated and so identified as God's a fundamental being and his fundamental nature 
as his holiness. You know, this is the very point at which the world calls us crazy. Because if you and I are serious about minding God's holiness, if you and I are serious about aligning our thoughts, our desires, and our practices to God's holiness, the world will call us weird at best. But in reality, the world will call us crazy, intolerant, unacceptable, out of fashion, and maybe people who do not deserve to belong in society. And that's what the world will tell you. But loved ones, it is the only way to live well. If you wish to live your life well, think often about God's name. His name is holy. And the third and the final answer to the question, how can I live life well, is think about God's home. Think about God's home. Now, did you notice how in verses 3 through 13, uh, Isaiah lists very specific deeds and acts of sin that, that substantiate and corroborate the characterization of the people as wicked. They are sexually immoral. They worship false idols. They even offer their children as sacrifice. They made prosperity their God so that everything that they do, everything they desire is all in the service of prosperity. But when you look at verses 14 through 19, the section about God's righteous people, you realize that they are called righteous not because of anything that they have done, but because of their emptiness. And so the Lord says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You know, it's really interesting to me that Pride is so deeply woven into our being that we often want to turn contrite and lowly spirit into meritorious work. What do I mean by that? I mean that you know, the pride is so ingrained in our very being. We have this mindset, you know, I, I, I have achieved that spiritual virtue of humility, and that's why God calls me righteous. I've done this. I have emptied myself of pride. And because I have done this, God accepts me. Actually, that's not what having contrite and lowly spirit means. When you are contrite, it means that you feel sorrow that you have failed to live up to God's holiness, that you've, you are broken in your heart, that you have dishonored God. And when you are lowly, it means that there's nothing going for you. 
You got nothing to boast about. You see, to have a contrite and lowly spirit is to be empty. That means to, to recognize that you have no claim before God whose name is holy. And it means to recognize that you have no hope apart from God's grace. And it means relying on grace alone, received by faith alone, and to give all glory to God. And it is with such people that God makes his home. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. I mean, think about how, how mind-boggling and amazing that is, because that holy God, whose dwelling place was so holy that to enter it meant death, and you do realize that is, the, that is the, the very character of the Old Testament religion. God is holy. His dwelling place is holy. And to enter into it meant death. But that God now makes his home with the contrite and the lowly, with those who who know that they have failed to meet God's standards, those who realize that they have failed to love God, those who realize they have failed to set their lives apart for God, those who are crushed by their realization, those who are crushed and burdened by life's many other weight. It is with them that God makes his home. And this is precisely the mystery and the glory of Jesus Christ. Do you remember John 1:14? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. The holy God before whose holiness even the sinless angels could not but hide their faces. That holy God in the person of Jesus Christ came to sinners and made his home with them. And he brought to you and to me grace and truth. That is to say, God has made his home with sinners, and Jesus has become our home. Now, what is home? A home is where we are loved, and it is where we are nurtured. The home is where we are safe. The home is where we can rest. And the home is where we learn to live well. And so I ask you this morning, have you made Jesus your home? 
You do not need to be homeless. You can come home. And you can come home to Jesus. Amen. Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, you who are high and exalted, you dwell also with the contrite and the lowly spirit. And that's what we are, Father. We confess to you that we have no claim. We have nothing to boast. But all our glory and all our boasting are in Jesus Christ. For he came to sinners to rescue and to love. And in Jesus Christ, we are safe. So Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as you have so graciously made your home with us, help us, lead us, that we may find you to be our home. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.